Welcome to the Sacred Collective. I am Caleb Rowe, and I'm going to be doing a homily on the Transfiguration today. You need a better name for it than that. How about The Divine Exit, which is a title that I'm kind of stealing from a talk by Barry Taylor. Uh, He uses the phrase Divine Exit Strategy in his telling of the book of Mark, it's kind of a radical theology or pyro theology telling of the gospel of Mark. And I kind of took his talk, which he gave at Peter Rollins's Wake Festival, and used that as that kind of understanding or that approach on the telling of the transfiguration story found in Mark uh, chapter 9, and used that kind of as a backdrop um, for for my homily. And what I'm going to do is I I'm going to I'm going to summarize Barry's perspective on 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 the story in Mark uh along the way and um and then also put a little bit of input myself, but I want to make sure that I give credit where it is due. So, big thank you to my mentor and friend Barry Taylor. By his book Sex God and Rock and Roll. I'm going to start by reading the scripture. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any bleach on earth could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say because they were all terrified, as usual. The disciples were always terrified and confused. What do you know? Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. So this is a story involving God's second appearance and final appearance in the book of Mark, in the story of the gospel that Mark, which is um, theorized to be the earliest of the Gospels, um, following the theoretical Q text upon which is supposedly based. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's supposed to. It's, it's kind of a bare bones gospel, and and theoretically, the other three Gospels, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, um, probably either drew from a common text known as the Q source text. Or uh, they at least drew from Mark, which also drew very heavily and 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 more, or, or drew heavily from the Q text, and probably didn't really add as much embellishment as a lot of the other gospels did. Um, and I'm, I might bring that up again a, a little bit. But first, let's talk about this 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 story. Um, it's a kind of a very on brand appearance of God. This this second appearance that he has. That we just read about. Uh, it's a very on-brand appearance for a divine figure, for God and the prophets, 
in the genre of scriptural literature, of scripture. God first shows up after Jesus' baptism, which of course follows Jesus' 40 days alone in the wilderness, being tempted and meditating and, and, and preparing for his calling, for his ministry. And so deserts are often places that are associated with the appearance of the divine because we often see spiritual characters going to deserts in an effort to find themselves. And then after Jesus goes through this this self-introspective kind of uh, uh, self-testing of a process in the desert, and he comes back out and is baptized to initiate his ministry for the next few years, then God shows up with a cloud and a dove and says, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. And then he has a a similar message at the transfiguration. And it's interesting that the transfiguration's appearance of God is also very on brand for scripture because uh, God also, or the divine also often appears in other religious traditions and religious texts um, on mountaintops. Mountaintops are often places that people and prophets will go to in an effort to encounter the divine or have an exchange with the divine. And so God's second appearance in Mark up on this mountaintop makes a lot of sense um, within this genre of, of, of spiritual, you know, it's kind of a trope, I guess. It's a, kind of a, a little bit of a trope. Um, so there they are, the disciples and Jesus on the mountain, terrified, of course, of these, these ghosts and of the, the cloud kind of sky god. And, you know, the religious authorities are there, Moses and Elijah, the prophets, talking to Jesus, showing approval, bestowing legitimacy on him and affirming his role. Peter, the disciple, always very quick to act, always very impulsive, always kind of trying to prove himself, jumping to conclusions and always confused, usually wrong. Uh, He wants to cling on to the old system. He wants to memorialize this encounter with the old prophets and the sky god in stone. He wants to build tabernacles because the specters of past religious authority are quickly evaporating. And Peter wants certainty. He wants to preserve the old way. He wants to cling to the old certainty of his old understanding. But God and the prophets are making their final appearance, their curtain call. Then from the cloud, God speaks with a message, like I said, similar to the one uh, from his uh, previous other appearance in this book. He says, this is my son, listen to him. Simple message. This is my son, listen to him. Then the prophets and God disappear, never to show up in Mark's story again. And so just the people are left. The terrified, confused disciples. Peter, who undergoes uh, rebuke and refutation after rebuke and refutation, uh, you know, wanting to, to jump at the opportunity here to, um, you know, he probably knows he's, 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 he probably at least suspects that he's involved in a very big event here, in a, in a world-changing, a perspective-changing, a cultural-changing, at the very least, event. 
this is a new kind of rabbi. This is a new way of thinking. And, and he feels very convicted at the very least. If not, I mean, there are many negative things we can say, but he is at least very convicted. He did, you know, step out of the boat onto the stormy waters. But he, you know, he started to sink. He's a human, but he's a convicted man, cutting off ears and making messes Jesus has to clean up <laughs> oftentimes. But he wants certainty. He wants the old way. It's Elijah and Moses. These are the celebrities of religious legitimacy. They can bestow authority on the new prophets. Many people in the culture thought on the reborn prophets. Elijah, John the Baptist rising from the dead. So just the people are left, the terrified, confused disciples, Peter included, who... Has to be told that he can't build his tabernacles. The confused disciples and this son of man, a criminal rabbi no one seems to understand, but everyone is fascinated by. A potential prophet. But what when Peter calls him the Messiah, Jesus again refutes him and tells him to stop talking like that and continues calling himself the son of man. Compared to the other three, Mark's gospel is a bit rushed and a bit dark. Mark also was a very poor writer, by the way. I alluded to earlier how, how kind of um, rushed and quick and, and um, less embellished his version of the story is. But there are also a lot of grammatical errors, uh, verbs in the wrong forms, and uh, inconsistently changing tenses. For example, this is just off the top of my head, but this is actually an analog to something you might find if you were to literally translate the Koine Greek into English. Um, but, but for, for example, the beginning of this story in chapter, or sorry, in uh, chapter nine, verse two, might read something more like Jesus take Peter, James, and John, and they are gone to go up mountain. Something like that. Not much of a writer. Mark's book also has less emphasis on the supernatural. Jesus performs healings and casts out spirits and some other miracles, but the story originally ended without a resurrection finale. Those verses were added uh, about 200 years after Mark wrote the book. Considering how old Mark was when he wrote the book, I doubt he had much to do with the rewrite. I don't know if he sat in on that uh, writer's table on the punch-up when they decided to land on the resurrection. But the original version just ends with an empty tomb with some guy in it in glowing robes like Jesus' robes when he was transfigured on the mountain who just says kind of, yeah, he's not here. So... The women are left to go back to Galilee to start this new chapter. And we are living in a new time now. God and the prophets showed up to bestow authority on the Son of Man and disappeared. Gone. No more fire and brimstone from the sky. No more hand reaching from a cloud to guide us or write ultimate truths on stone tablets for us. Twice. After we break the first set, no more manna falling from heaven, but us, people, called to be the body, the body of Christ, the healing hands of Christ, the feeding hands of Christ, the visitor of Christ, 
when we are low and we need a friend. Or, or, or the, the visited Christ when he's in prison and alone or hungry or cold or thirsty. But it's just us called to be the body in this new era. We aren't escorted up the mountain to meet with God. We're invited to go down the mountain to live in the here and the now. Facing the daily struggles, how to figure out what we think might possibly satisfy us and how to try to maybe, maybe get it. As Barry Taylor said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said, In a changing society, static stories or static readings or interpretations are not useful. Say that again from Barry Taylor. In his talk at Wake on the Transfiguration. In a changing society, static stories or static readings or interpretations. I think that's the only part I added. Static readings or static interpretations of stories are not useful. So, moments on mountains to memorialize the ghosts of dead prophets are of no use. Christ said, the kingdom is in our hearts. And anyone who loves knows God. And that collectively, we metaphysically transform into Christ's body by consuming Christ or love. Because we become what we eat. So I guess my takeaway is that, as I said, we are called to build the kingdom and be the body. We need to communicate well patiently disagree well we need to listen be honest be earnest give a damn be a little less selfish participate in love in the occurrence of god proactively and creatively participate in the event of god Not be like Peter wanting to cling to the old system. But learning and moving forward and moving back down the mountain to live out the story, to incarnate Christ as the body, as members of the body, of the flesh and blood of Christ on earth. And I hope that it's true. I won't say that I suspect that it is necessarily an absolute truth. And I won't deny that it could very well be the result of uh, conditioning. I know that how I express it is the result of conditioning and is incidental. But I hope that together, through the way, through learning as we go and loving each other and having boundaries when it comes to that too. P.S. Can't say one without the other. But I hope, like I was saying, but I hope that we can encounter an incurrence of God. That we can become subject to or bring down upon ourselves. That's what the transitive verb to incur means, is to become, it's transitive, to become liable 
or subject to, and then I guess actively bringing down upon oneself. But I think that through the event of love and our participation in it, that we can spark a fire with a small ember and that we can build a fire and participate in that fire and participate in God. We can build something and experience something. Hopefully become better because I'm not great at this stuff. Of course, this is all theoretical. Of course, I'm being dramatic in some ways too. I'm following a format, presenting this to you in a certain way, a cadence, certain vocabulary. I believe everything I say. I try to. I think I do, as much as you can believe anything. But I think that we can experience and participate in and build love, and thereby we can incur God. I'm sticking with that for now. The thought is all it is, really. It's a new thought. Onwards and upwards, about all we can do.